Good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to another edition of the Blacksmith's Furnace with myself, Pete, and my lap mo out here. Yes. Luckily, Robert is not here, so <laughs> you guys have got the um, heavy hitters. Heavy hitters. But, I... <laughs> but today is a special one. Today is an yes. extremely special yes. one because yes. we have a really, really important guest. And actually, I think it was it was it was God's sovereignty that Robert is not here because I didn't know if he would let me do the introduction, but I wanted to do the introduction. So, what I want you guys to to imagine? I said God's sovereignty <laughs> that Robert's not here. Like God just shoved him out of the way, just 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 so I could do the introduction. Because you know, Robert, the second I said I want to, he was like, "No." Yeah. Anyway, so listeners, I want you guys to imagine Laura Croft oh, and snap. Indiana Jones. I. Them two meet up somewhere on one of the archaeological tomb raiding stuff, right? And they have a kid. And that kid gets saved. Hey! <laughs> and then goes off to Harvard. Ghost. <laughs> and becomes a full-on, like, biblical archaeologist, theologian, everything. Hey. And she's written books, literally, when I say these two books have affected how I look at the Bible and literally mm. change, like, the way I talk about the Bible. It's been such such a great like um, it's it's a privilege really. It's it's such a great um, opportunity to have the lovely Amanda Hope Haley on the podcast today. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> did Did you like my introduction? I I, I am humbled <laughs> by your introduction, and um, yeah, not not up to that standard at all. <laughs> Um, well, would you like to just maybe say a little bit about yourself for the listeners? Um, just just to introduce yourself to them. Yeah. Sure. Um, I um, I am from America. <laughs> I am I am in Tennessee, so um, we're it's it's the southern region, and I I grew up here. Um, went to public school. Grew up in the church in a Protestant tradition. And I ended up going to college and I went to a college that required biblical courses, which was fine with me because I, I was already a lover of God and lover of the Bible. And I discovered biblical archaeology through that. And I did okay in those classes. And my professors suggested that maybe I should apply to Harvard, which was something I'd never you know, really considered. And so I did just that and I got in and I had a wonderful experience there. I have a master of theological studies. I don't have a PhD. I just have my master's, but, um, I got to go and dig with, you know, Harvard at that time. This is back in the two thousands. And, um, I fell in love with it. And, you know, for me, biblical archeology, um, it is something that does strengthen my faith. Um, but mm. it also is something that, it comes alongside a faith that I already had. And when I write, I think it's really important for me to kind of explain to readers that, you know, biblical archaeology doesn't exist to prove the Bible. I don't think God 
God, God definitely does not need us going around, you know, proving his words, proving that it's true. But it is, it is so helpful for people who are studying it to you know, be able to understand the words better and contextualize everything. And for me, biblical archaeology just it helps me understand God's word because it helps me understand the world that it came out of. So that's that's just a little bit about my passion. <laughs> That's amazing. And I think that really does come through, especially with um, Mary Magdalene never wore blue eyeshadow. Yeah, that was, yes. yes. I can never that remember is if it's... about hermeneutics. <laughs> <laughs> you never, never know remember. it from the title. It's, it's easily the best title book I've read. Uh, and when I mentioned it, when I, I mentioned the book for a hookup a while back, and, and I'd never met you at the time. And I think that's how you found out about the podcast. It is. Google Google tattled on you, basically. (laughs) It was like, your name just popped up somewhere. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And so I went and I started listening to you guys. And, you know, here we are a year or so later. (laughs) But I think that's that's definitely where um, reading that book and reading some of the um, sins of tradition changing what actually the, the, the word says and, and viewing the word in that in that sense of this is something that came out of a particular context and mm-hmm. that's important for interpreting it um i think and, and we've had conversations more about interpretation of scripture and stuff and i think yeah. books like yours the mary magdalene uh, and the new book um, the red-haired archaeologist digs israel is uh, um, amazing books for to, to help people see that and, and we'll get into it a bit a bit later on but, Do you know what? Let me, let's, yeah, I, yeah. If I could just just slide in. Yeah, um, please, please. The, the one thing that I really enjoyed about your introduction, um, Amanda, is like um, where you're saying archaeology almost comes alongside your faith already. Um, there's 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 this unfortunate um, happening that I see sometimes where people almost want historical proof as the basis of their faith um without recognizing that fundamentally it is a faith it is something that is supernatural it's something that isn't quite like it isn't but yes jesus lived like physically he died and he rose again but our faith is a supernatural one and we're not necessarily trying to latch on to historical research to to prove or validate our faith but the holy spirit does that and these things almost strengthens those things so i really love that um and that was actually one thing that i was going to try to tease up but you just hit you just went straight for it in your introduction so i was just like yeah let me let me latch on to that but yeah i really enjoyed that and it, it was so brief but i think it was so profound in that everything that we do almost supplements the faith as opposed to being like being its foundation yeah that it's my heart. It's, it's where my heart is with everything that I write. And I guess that that's why it comes out is I feel like there are a lot of people out there in, 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 let's say theological academia who maybe they are Christians, but they don't really lead with that. And I'm a little bit opposite. I think of a lot of theologians that way, because I am, I'm just going to tell you I'm a Christian, you know, from the beginning, but what I'm writing about and what I'm learning about and what I'm teaching about, um, it's, it is, it's, it's supplementary, it's secondary, and it can help build up your faith, but it can't be the foundation of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. So first segment of the podcast, sorry, not sorry. Now we have a Harvard trained masters in theology, um, 
theologian here, we can't we can't even attempt to take a hot seat. So I think I mentioned <laughs> to you, Amanda, um, and you graciously said you would be happy to take the hot seat. I will, I will. I did prepare one question for you guys too. Oof. Maybe that's a little bit later on in the show. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> um well so uh sorry, <laughs> sorry. if we run out of time that's I know, okay. right? <laughs> um so uh, i would have i would have like brought out some now i'm feeling like oh any question that i bring out is not going to be big enough <laughs> no 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 not at all <laughs> um so first question I, I'll, I'll go first whilst more you think of a yes. big enough question um but uh so I think I wanted to ask this because I think it's one of the things that your, especially Mary Magdalene, initially really challenged me on, um, and and that is why was the scripture given? Um, why did God give us the scriptures? Um, and if, if what's your yeah, could you answer that question? Why why did God give us the scriptures? In your opinion? My take on it is. Um, so I'm trying to figure out exactly where to start, but basically our, our scriptures, I think, are different from a lot of other religion scriptures in that, you know, they weren't handed to us on golden tablets or, you know, like in some like perfect, you know, divine form. Here it is. Instead, what we have is a collection of 66 different or 66 plus, depending on your tradition, you know, different books written by different people at different times in different languages. And um, that can be a problem, I think, for a lot of theologians. They want to they want to take that all those differences and use them as, you know, evidence that God doesn't exist or something like that. And I think it's just the opposite. I think, um, and this is just me, that part of the reason God gave it to us in this format is because he is a relational God. We see that, you know, beginning in Genesis, you know, he's not up there by himself. He's a we. He creates people together. He wanted to be in the garden walking with us, among us. He is relational. And I think he wants us to be relational. Relational. And our scriptures being in the format that they are, they force us to interact with them in order mm. to learn him better and interact better with him. And so I just, I think it's all by design, basically. It's, um, you know, yeah, he, he didn't make it so easy. He could have given it to us on golden tablets or something like that. And I, you know, I like to say it, probably be a whole lot easier for everybody if God, you know, once a year held a press conference and is like, this is what you're doing right. This is what you're doing wrong. You people have it. You people don't, you know, and then he just disappears until next year or something. Maybe that would be easier, but that's not his design. Mm -hmm. And um, instead of questioning it and poking holes at it, I, you know, I just accept it and I try Mm -hmm. to lean into it and learn as much as I can, because if we didn't have these different books to wrestle with, then, you know, what would be the incentive to, you know, to get to know him better? It's like in our, just in our interpersonal relationships, you know, you, you have to spend time getting to know a person, their likes, their dislikes, you know, all of that. And uh, anyway, that's, that's my take on, you know, why they're kind of the way that they are. Mm, yeah. No, that's perfect. And that's, that's definitely what I go for. I think in, um, in the redhead of theologist Diggs Israel, you specifically almost not go against, but you call out the idea of Bible being basic instructions before leaving Earth. I think that, yeah. that yeah. is. That's um, a saying I grew up with. The B I B L E. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and 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 that's something that's thrown around so easily and so casually. Mm. 
but doesn't really capture, as you said, the relational nature of God. And I think that's something that like Mo and I and Robert, we, we end up always talking about is God so desires a, a personal relationship with us mm. that it can't just be litigation. It can't just be laws and, and, mm. and do's and don'ts and stuff. And presenting himself through the story of his interactions with people, as you say, mm. forces us to do the same, interact with him in order to get to know him, as opposed to just read X, Y, Z and not do this and do that and, and stuff. So, yeah, I, I really like that. And, and that's mm. the Mary Magdalene, especially, I think, really challenged the way I thought about the Bible and, and continues in um, Redhead Archaeology. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I like that answer. Um, yeah. It's just my take. There's nothing, you know, <laughs> divine about it. <laughs> um, it's a good take. It is thank good you. Take. <laughs> so my my question is around um, textual criticisms. Okay. Um, and more more specifically, like how recently scholars have started to. Um, no, I say recently, loosely, um, but more recently in terms of like centuries and stuff, scholars have started to to almost discredit certain books as not being written by the person that it says it was written by. Um, so quite a lot of the, I think only about seven books from Paul, people are like, yes, this is definitely Paul wrote them, but the other ones they're like, I'm not quite sure who wrote these. Um, and... It can be, depending on where your level of faith is, it can be quite difficult interacting with the Bible, having, from the perspective of this, this book says, written by Paul, but now I've got a bunch of scholars saying it wasn't actually written by Paul. So in that, there's almost this, this at least this feeling of deception from the text, that this text says it's from Paul, but it's actually not. Um, how... How would you suggest um, or encourage people to navigate that that tension between textual criticisms and scholars disproving or um, asserting that books weren't written by those who were who they were claimed to be or ascribed to be written by, um, whilst they were trying to retain their faith, knowing that like this is God's word, even if like people say it wasn't written by Paul and stuff. I feel like a, a lot of questions like this, um, I end up going back to telling, to explaining how the Bible developed mm. and not to continue with my like gold tablet thing, but to continue with it, <laughs> um, it, it, it wasn't that way. Uh, the Bible, you know, developed over all of these generations. And I think that was by design. And so, um, I think it helps when you understand that it, for instance, taking the first five books of the Bible, you know, they are of Moses. And I would say, you know, as someone who studied the text and the languages and, you know, understand some of that, the, the language that is there, the way that it is used, um, it probably was written down um, into a similar form that we have today somewhere like around the time of King David. But prior to that, what you have is hundreds of years of, um, of verbal traditions. And to say that those are the books of Moses, you know, to me, that may not mean that, you know, he sat down necessarily, you know, and put pen to parchment. Um, but those were, you know, the, the, 
the traditions, those are the words that he was saying to the Israelites. Um, and those are the words that, you know, were so important to people that they were, you know, carried for hundreds of years before they could be written down. Just, you know, by the time language, written language was, you know, more, more popular, basically. Mm. I mean, you didn't have women typically, you know, learning to write or anything like that. And so oral tradition was very, very important. That's why you see even in, especially in the Old Testament, the oldest parts of the Bible, according to people who study such things, are the ones that rhyme. They rhyme in Hebrew. They often don't rhyme in our translations. But um, because they were songs, they were things that were intended, they were so important that God gave them to his people in a format that they could carry with them, you know, in their minds. Um, and especially when Israel was a nomadic culture, you know, you don't want to be hefting around, you know, tablets. Parchment itself is very, very heavy. So I think there was a time for it to be that way. And so to say those first five books, you know, they're the books of Moses, that's not incorrect. Um, but to say that Moses, you know, sat down pen to paper and wrote them there, you know, scholars are going to disagree with you there. And they're going to say that's not possible because of the way the language develops. But there's no reason that those two can't exist together. And then I would also say as a person of faith that, and a, a person of the academy that um, people study more and we learn more, especially with archaeology, as things come out of the ground. We find these bits of material culture that suddenly make us understand you know, a word in Hebrew better than we were able to before because we didn't have a connection before. So as, as we study more, as we learn more here, we, you know, we may discover, no, that's wrong. You know, maybe it wasn't written down during David's time. Maybe it was written down during the time of the judges or all the way back. So scholarship can change. I think that stuff obviously is important. I love it. I enjoy it. And I think it, it helps us understand the Bible better. But I hold that lighter then I do just, you know, the over, you know, just the overwhelming belief that I have that this is God's word. And when you have those places where the academy and the text maybe is disagreeing, I want to dive in and study that more. Um, and I, I find that God, that God finds me there, you know, that those are places where, you know, he can kind of speak to me, but we have to be okay with saying, I don't know when things contradict. And, and, that's fine. We're not supposed to know everything. The world will tell us different, mm. um, you know, but not God. God is a mystery and that's by his design. We'll know it all when it's complete. Just not right now. Mm. I, I really like, I really like the answer. I was going to, I was going to push towards the new Testament where there was the, okay. um, like people were actually writing things down yeah. at that point. So it wasn't there wasn't so much of a of an oral tradition then as much as there was within the Old Testament. But I think you you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned um, leaning more into God yeah. in those spaces um, rather than than the black and white text that's in front of us and the scholarship that kind of comes along with that and trusting in God that like this is what he has intended for us to read this is what he isn't this is how he has intended to communicate himself to us um so even if someone's tried to disprove this or disprove that just to be like no but this is how god has intended to communicate himself to us and so regardless of all of these things at least i can trust that god has intentionally communicated himself through these means and so there is still something for me to take from this um so yeah i think there's football happening in the background, so you might be hearing. It's okay. <laughs> might, That's okay. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so there's still something to kind of take from that. Um, so yeah, I liked, I liked that. I was going to push in a New Testament, but I think you've answered that. I'm with, with... happy to continue in that way too, because I think the same kind of principle holds even with the New Testament, because we don't have any of the original, original manuscripts, you know, from Paul or, I mean, from any of those letters, what we have are copies of copies of copies. And so that as things, you know, get copied, you know, yeah, maybe Paul wasn't, again, putting that pen to paper. It was, you know, one of his followers doing it at that time. Or um, even at, like the book of Hebrews, when I was writing it's so funny. I actually thought about this this morning in the shower. I do my best thinking in the shower. <laughs> but for some reason, I was thinking about Hebrews this morning. And I, I, I think it was when I was doing Mary Magdalene. My editor came back to me. We were talking about like who wrote who wrote the books of the Bible. And she kind of pushed and she's like, I've just heard this, you know, really cool theory that the book of Hebrews may have been written by, no, not Hebrews. It would have been Romans. I'm sorry. That, that the book of Romans may have been written by a woman. And it's a theory that I've heard too. I mean, there's, there are these people who are saying these things. And I mean, I, she's like, yeah, it'd be really cool. Like if you just, you know, kind of put that in there, that theory. And I pushed against her and obviously it didn't make it into the book. And I said, because they want to, they want to say that uh, Priscilla maybe was the one who wrote it down because of her proximity to Paul, you know, and. I don't know. There's all these reasons, you know, that they have. But I, basically, I went back to her and I said, for all of the reasons that they're saying it could have been her, it could have been a woman. It is just as, if not more likely, that it was her husband, you know, or it was someone else from the community. And I think academia, and especially like the progressive Christian movement, mm-hmm. they really want us to be able to find ourselves in the Bible. Mm. which we all want to do that. We all want to be able to identify with characters and all of that. But when you're trying to force the issue that a woman could have written this just so that we can say a woman was involved in the writing of the Bible, mm. I, I think that's humanism. I, I, I don't, I, I just, I, that doesn't hold water for me. Um, and to me, there's not really great evidence that Priscilla wrote it. I mean, maybe, maybe she did, you know, maybe who knows, but um, it's just as likely, uh, if not more likely that, that she did not. Um, so, you know, th- these are arguments that we can have, but again, hold lightly, maybe be entertained by them, learn from them. Mm. But again, it's, it's going back to, you know, what is in the text and the, the way that God gave it to us. That's powerful. Um, I, I, I was, really I was gonna, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I was gonna say we could probably, we, we could probably, um, we could probably allow you to fire back, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see how we see how we fare since you <laughs> answered so well. See how we fare when, uh, when, when we, we get shot up. Pete, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you handle the question first. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just put that. <laughs> so. so so you're ready for my question. It's it's not as yeah. deep and it's not as biblical. Um, <laughs> so I'm an American, and um, one of the things that you know I grew up with was this idea of the separation of church and state. Like mm. you know, this is one of the reasons we became a country, and you know we're taught that it's it's an ideal of our country that we fall very short of very very often. But you know just this idea that the government, you know, doesn't tell us what to believe, how to worship, anything like that, you know, is, is the goal. Mm. Um, but obviously, I mean, in England, you guys have a queen and she's not just the head of state, but she's the head of the church. And so 
I genuinely, as an outsider, don't get it. So how does that how does that work for you guys? <laughs> I think I think I may be the best qualified to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> Um, cause I, I've, I've actually, I was training to, to be a church of England priest. Okay. Um, awesome. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I may, I may butcher it and I may get all, all of my credits, credibility just revoked right after this question, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it is. Um, so I, for the most part, align with, with your statement that okay. there shouldn't be this, um, church and state kind of coexisting I think and I also lean back to <clears throat> the early church where it was very much this like underground thing separate that people kind of joined and it wasn't almost levied on the entire community but you almost chose to join it and when you chose to join it then you you, you chose to kind of adhere to, to what it was I, I do recognize some people's um, arguments around um, Israel as a nation and everyone born into that nation then kind of being held to that standard um, but again it's it's the society and the culture that we're now in just cannot hold that that sort of um, narrative in that that is so multicultural that we can't impose Christian values and I think um, operating under grace almost moves us away from that because when we impose quote-unquote Christian values for the entire society to live under then we're very we, we, we stray very closely to presenting works-based righteousness as opposed to great uh, great and faith-based righteousness whereas like you need to adhere to these things in order to to sit right in as much as yes it promotes a good and healthy environment and community as we believe but still, it's very much, if you do these things, you're a good citizen. And so, therefore, God will be pleased with you and you'll be getting into heaven. So that's that's where I kind of draw the line. But I think it, it's, it almost stems from the head of the country being devoted or being a Christian and being the head of a church. And so her role and her reign includes the religion that she kind of, um, she's affiliated with or, or a head of in charge of almost quote unquote yeah the the system is a bit interesting to to just use it to use a word um so yeah the head of the church of england is the queen um and as she's the queen of of england then her rule almost extends with the church where there's a there's like a parish or a church in every single area that kind of serves the area stuff and that's part of her rule and her presence there um so yeah I think it's it's by it's almost by design that she's the head of the church and this is where her influence spreads to so the influence of the church spreads with her influence as well um but yeah I I don't necessarily agree with it um the same way that I wouldn't agree with being um subjected to Islamic law where sure. I live or being subjected to whatever so I want, almost want to afford them the same liberties that I would want in that I wouldn't want impose I wouldn't want you to impose your religion on me so I wouldn't do that to you let's try see if we can like um coexist but I know that for the most part the church is trying to facilitate space for the different cultures and different traditions to be able to coexist within this space but again that opens up a whole can of worms as to can like uh first I may be butchering the scripture but um 
what partnership has the Church of God with with the Church of Satan and stuff like that? Like, how can you facilitate as as a church? How can you facilitate the worship of a God that you don't believe is a God within your area and stuff like that? Which makes it a bit more tricky. Um, but yeah, I do not know if I've answered the question. Um, but I, was, I, I could I could uh, just add a little bit to it as well because I think it also speaks to the role of the queen as figurehead and not necessarily as real mm. head of the country mm. she's um, not a pope no she's not no no she's not a pope and and um because we have a prime minister and the whole um parliament uh, system ex- yeah parliament yeah. system yeah that's the word i was looking for um we end up having her mostly just as a figurehead and she's got her role and she's got her things that she does but to say that because the Queen of England is Christian, England is a Christian nation would not would be incorrect. Okay. And so I, I think while some she would is argue the, that, but practically, well, some would argue that, but practically, yeah, yeah, practically, mm-hmm. um, by virtue of the politics and and her actual real power, should I say, um, she is she remains a figurehead, and we've got a political system that, much like yours, is very much divided from the church uh, and, and is very much trying to be secular and fair in all ways they can be and not necessarily christian so she's almost more like the head of a denomination maybe as we would kind of put it in the u.s because like you know we have the heads of the southern baptists and the presbyterian you know they all have their people up at the top that maybe more like that yeah yeah she, she yeah. does hold some political sway um mm-hmm. Because no, I meant church uh, specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 I think yeah. the um, the Church of England would be quite um they're quite I, I don't know I don't quite know the word, but they they wouldn't describe themselves as a denomination. Um sorry, to... no, 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 it's all right, it's all right. <laughs> and this this is something that tripped me up because I was in an I was in a conversation with someone and I mentioned them as a denomination. Uh-huh. And one of the archdeacons was actually like, um, you should like use this language as opposed to that. Oh. Um, so that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just took this is to why the I asked the question to learn. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's more it's more of a tradition um, than a denomination, and within that tradition, they hold onto different uh, traditions within found within different denominations. So within the Church of England, you find a charismatic church, you will find um, an Anglican, um, um, Catholic sort of style of church as well. So they hold on to a vast and everything in between. So evangelical, Methodist, like all of those are held within the Church of England tradition. Um, so yeah, they, so they're not quite a de- denomination as we would understand it, but it's almost an expression that holds on to all of these different traditions, um, which for me is very fascinating because I find that with specific denominations, I can sometimes get pigeonholed and tunnel visioned as to this expression of, of faith. But within the Church of England, I'm, I'm always pushed to recognize the breadth of how God has interacted with his people um, through all of the different uh, traditions and denominations, um, which, which for me, I find beautiful. And it pushes me to learn from Catholics, from uh, Protestant, from, yeah, from like all the different denominations. So it's like, God is at work within all of these spaces. How can I draw and learn from them? 
that's what we need to be doing. I think in the U.S. we get so factionalized with with our denominations, and I know talk, talking with friends about how we grew up differently. Like I grew up Southern Baptist, and um, as did a friend of mine, and she would talk about how you know she and her friends would look down on the Methodists, you know, because of this, that, or the other thing. And we do, we do, we, we, we get in our lanes and think that we have to believe, you know, what this one group says. And that's not what God wants from us. He wants us to be rubbing up against each other and learning from each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. I think, I think we did okay. I think we did okay. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the question. <laughs> Um, cool. All right. So, so moving on. Um, I didn't mention Robert gave us the topic he was going to ask, but just before we we go down though, because um, I, I may have a little bit of a bone to pick with you, Amanda. Okay. <laughs> Many people because... do. If you can avoid the big H word, heretic, I would appreciate it. Oh, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it's because it made me feel more of a heretic. But no, so. An experience that I had reading Mary Magdalene and um, the red-haired uh, archaeologist again was how to describe it. It was being being challenged on on things that we we believed and mm. and to some not to some extent but almost feeling like you're, you're taking the magic away. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Let, let me let me explain. Let me explain. <laughs> so. Um, Something like uh, we, we've all seen. I think we've all seen. Actually, now it's it's so far. Um, it's so old. I, we may not have all seen, but the Ten Commandments movie. Oh, I love it! Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great film, <laughs> of fiction. And, and, yes. and it, uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I love how you did that. Great <laughs> film of fiction. There you go. Um, so something like that, and, and something like the the idea of the golden calf, and mm. and we all we all you know. I mean, actually, having read it, realize, I realized actually the only reason I think of it that way is because of the movie. But the idea that it was this massive golden calf that they then were like, this could be your God. And, and you give a very sobering um, example of how because of the traditions around and, and the, the, the behavior of the people to want to almost create a seat for their God it could be that Israel was just doing that in that moment of desperation and actually saying, not this golden calf, but actually this could be the seat for our God to come since we no longer have heard of him. Um, and uh, you, you, you did that again with actually Solomon's temple <laughs> and talking about the architecture of the surroundings. And we know um, Solomon got, uh, he got people from other places come and help with building and stuff. And so it's not surprising then that even if we don't have Solomon's temple, we could have temples from that era that have similar architectural value, um, not value, architectural characteristics. Um, and so but my bone, which is not really a bone, I'm actually quite <laughs> appreciative of it, but is is in in navigating these things, um, do, you, do you ever struggle with that, with uh maybe some of these things that have become tradition and that almost have become important to the structure of people's faiths and challenging them. Do you ever do you ever struggle with that with maybe being the one that will shake something that is it's not maybe isn't true and, and shouldn't have been that way, but has become that way? Do you do you ever have that tension? I I do, definitely. Um 
yes, <laughs> is, is the big answer to, to the examples that you gave and, and so many more. Because I think for a lot of us who grew up in the church or even, let's say for Americans, you know, looking at the movie, The Ten Commandments. Um, I mean, that is Cecil B. DeMille. It was a worldwide hit. And yes, like when I hear um, you know, the words of Exodus, like I hear Cecil B. DeMille's voice, you know, and his booming, you know, and all of that. And I picture what he put on the screen because every, every Easter in the U.S. or or around Easter now, but used to like every good Friday, the 10 commandments came on like, you know, our local ABC channels. And, you know, we saw it every year, like go to good Friday service, come home, watch the 10 commandments on Sunday, you have Easter. Like that's just what we did as Americans. And so all of that, even though it is not about Jesus, I'm not sure why that particular film is the one that got shoehorned in there, but it did. Um, but yeah, so we, we grew up with those images. And when you grow up with those images or those ideas that may not be biblical, you supply them in there. It is so much harder. And this is something I still struggle with. It's so much harder to realize what is not in the Bible as opposed to what is in it, because that that's that's just our habit. We just supply it. It's like a good exercise is to go to the gospels and read them independently. And you'll realize that like, like when I read the gospels, I picture the entire nativity scene, you know, the, the animals are there, the angels are there, the wise men are there. I see them all, even though they're not in all of the accounts, you know, bits and pieces, the wise men are in Matthew, you know, Gabriel is in Luke, you know, you have to read them all to get that entire image. But we were all raised with our nativities, you know, under our trees or at Christmas time. And so we, we see everything that's there. And um, that's hard because you know, when I, when I'm talking to people and, you know, I'll say like, you know, the golden calf, you know, may not have been this giant thing. It probably was something much smaller. When you, you know, simply look at the amount of metal material that was left available, you know, to be used for it. When you explain that to somebody, there is this moment of, well, if what I've been picturing my entire life is wrong, what else is wrong? Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to present that information in, in a way that is light and that is full of love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, cause we've all, you know, been there, we all were taught the same things. And that's the, the title of my last book, Mary Magdalene never wore blue eyeshadow. It was an outgrowth of that. I grew up believing that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute mm -hmm. and I was in graduate school at Harvard sitting in a classroom when I found out that that wasn't the truth. I mean, 22 years old in Harvard at Harvard, and we were reading the gospel of Mary, which is extra, extra biblical, not in the Bible, but we were discussing it as a text. And the professor who was there was like, you know, Hey, you know, why do you people think that the apostles, you know, weren't believing what Mary was saying in this text? And I raised my hand and I said, Oh, well, was it because she was a prostitute? And I was literally laughed at and it was very, very embarrassing. And one kid, he was a kid, he was an undergrad. <laughs> one kid said to me, how did you get to Harvard and not know that Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute? And it's like, once the steam wore off, like, that's the best question ever. And I went and I told my mom this happened. And my mom was like, no, 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 that's wrong. I know Mary Magdalene was a prostitute because when I was growing up, we did an Easter pageant. I was Mary Magdalene Stress. and my mother painted Stress. my face with blue eyeshadow, you know? And so it's like, 
okay, I was taught it. My mom was taught it. Her mom was taught it. You know, you can go all the way back to Pope Mm. Gregory the Great to find, you know, where this came from. But you grow up with these traditions and these ideas sadly, the same way you grow up with scripture. And so it's, it's eventually upon the individual, you know, to be really, really vigilant and, you know, checking what your leaders are telling you and what you've been told all your life and to, to try to remove the scales from your eyes and read scripture as purely as you possibly mm-hmm. can. But, you know, there's constantly stuff that's coming up that I'm like, wait, that, that wasn't in there. Like I, I've always thought this is correct, but you go back and look and it's like, Oh no, it's, it's, it's not, that's not what the Bible says. It's tradition. Do you know, it's two, two points. The first one is, is potentially three, two, 2.5. Um, your, your statement about, um, David not being a giant, um, that that did the exact same Goliath thing. Yeah, Goliath, Goliath, not David. Goliath, not being a giant, did the exact same thing as what I was just like, wait, whoa, wait, whoa. That's, that's exactly, that's exactly, <laughs> I, um, I remember I was walking, I was walking around, I was like, wait, hold on. I, I actually stopped. Wait, wait, hold on, as I'm listening to the book, like, oh, that makes sense, but oh no. <laughs> and and it, it I was just like, yo, wait, what? Well, like all these years of Christianity is just just been like what what wait what and which leads on to the second point which is is the the power of um of the images that we've taken in throughout um through our our history as as humans christians stuff like that and not just the the images but also the stories and the narratives um so with with slight um emphasis and blah 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 and like the emphasis on on goliath being a big person and then just emphasize the change from big to almost giant it kind of makes sense but it, it deviates from what the bible's actually saying and there's that statement of the quote about like a one percent deviation doesn't seem that a one degree deviation doesn't seem that big until you kind of draw the line out um but yeah for me it really really emphasizes the the value of having accurate representations of what the Bible is actually trying to say, um, down to just um, just like again the cultures, the physicalities, and like the the people, the the representation and stuff, um, and it, it reminds me of the image of the white Jesus. Um, that's that's what it reminds me of. Where I I so I was born into a Muslim household. And even before I became a Christian, I had only been exposed to the image of a white Jesus. And so coming to faith, um, when the, the thing that really shattered that for me was when I was reading some books by James Cone. And I, uh, he, was, uh, he was talking about Simon the Cyrene being a black person. And I really wrestled with it. And I was like, but how do we know? Like, the Bible doesn't say that he was black. And then the question came up to me, but does the Bible say he was white? And I was like, whoa, hold on, wait. And then I looked and I was just like, I've, because of the images that I've been fed, I've read this narrative into, into the entire biblical text. And I was just like, this, I have imposed something into it as opposed to allowing it to reveal itself to me. And even with this again, it's just like, yes, I have been, I have grown up seeing these pictures of a giant and, and David. And it's just like, I've just, superimpose these into the text as I'm reading them 
and now it's just like actually no let's let's slow down let's actually read the bible for what it's saying mm-hmm. and interact with that as opposed to the images that have been fed um so yeah that that was sobering that was really sobering to just be like whoa david i mean goliath not a giant mud and even um you you had mentioned um one guy um Rephaim, i believe um, the Rephaim. Mm-hmm. yes potentially could be their father's name as opposed to being I a mean, descendant of them. Most likely. Yeah. Just like, just, yeah. Just, what, what, so what, what, happened? <laughs> what just happened? So many of those moments. Like, and, and that's why, that's why I recommended the um, Mary Magdalene. I've been waiting to recommend red, uh, red haired um, archaeologist on the podcast because you get so many of those moments, so many mind blown moments like, huh, it just makes you think a little bit more about what we've been taking in. And it really highlights the power of art mm. and the power of art's influence over the things that we see and things we believe. You talk about uh, Sister Bloody Mill's uh, Ten Commandments, but you also look at even our, well, not our portrayal, but the portrayal of angels as haloed creatures with wings. And it's like, that's not been described. And mm. I, I, think <laughs> yeah. you, I think you highlight, um, you highlight a description of, I think it's in. I think it's in. Uh, I think it's the description of the not the Proverbs thirty-one woman, but the woman described in Songs of is it Songs of Solomon um, it, with thorns and. Um, oh, that's Song of Solomon. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And if we if we if we take for granted the things that we see artists portray them as, mm. those can very easily become our truth, and they're not they're not going to be biblical. They're not true and they could affect how we relate to the word because we think of it a certain way and it's not meant to be that way. So yeah, that, that was really powerful. That, that was, <laughs> those are some interesting moments. <laughs> to those books. are the moments that get me called a heretic <laughs> because it's, I mean, it, it's, it's scary when you're faced with those new ideas for the first time and it's easier to just push it away than mm-hmm. to, you know, really go back and consider what the text actually says. Mm. Um, but I think the implications can be so big because like, for instance, with Goliath and I'm I'm not sure you said this, but basically what I explain is that, um, Goliath in your text, you can go and look, he's never actually, the word giant is never used. Um, and so when we read it, we supply it in there. And then there are two different manuscripts that your old Testament comes from, um, the Greek and the Hebrew and Uh, The Greek says he was seven feet tall. The Hebrew says nine feet tall. And for a lot of various reasons, I happen to side with the seven feet tall camp. Um, Regardless, a good Bible is going to tell you both. Mm. Um, So, so, I mean, that's, that's, you know, the background for all this, but the more important thing to me is, for instance, with David and Goliath, I grew up and it was the story of a little child swinging, you know, just swinging a little, you know, um, or one of those things called slingshot. Uh, yeah, slingshot. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but like one of the little pebble ones, you know, <laughs> hitting a massive, you know, cyclops type giant and taking him down and this grand act of God. And while there's definitely an element of that in there, it became, so, it makes the story so fantastic mm. that it can lose its application to our lives. 
And, you know, would you understand the history a little bit better and know that, you know, David was a young but grown man, you know, strong guy in his own right, you know, shepherding, not an easy gig. Um, you know, his slingshot, it was more like a shot put, you know, that you, you see in the Olympics, you know, going up against, yes, Goliath, big guy, even at seven feet tall. I mean, still mm. big guy, you know, but not mythical. Um, but, but, you know, <laughs> trained warrior coming out of this tradition like there it is still you know god was there god was in this but you know, when when the scales are leveled a little bit then you can see the applications to your own life and how you know god prepared david to be in that place you know god gave him that active background as you know as a shepherd god gave him you know the knowledge with that weapon you know mm. to do all this god equips us for these circumstances that seem outside of our control well if you're just looking at it as the children's story you're going to miss all of that and i think it's really important i mean that's why the story is in there it's for god to speak to us, you know, not, not for us just to see it in Sunday school and say, you know, in that cute and move on. <laughs> you know what? It, it's, uh, man, I'm really enjoying this conversation. It's so <laughs> fascinating because oh. it, it's e even just taking the, the David and Goliath narrative. It just struck me now that like David had to be of, of a significant stature to be able to put on Saul's battle armor. If he True. was a child, he wouldn't have been able to put it on. Right. But for Saul, the king, he would be like, yo, here's my armor, put it on. Yeah. Meant yeah. that physically he was of a stature that he can put on the king's armor. Right. It was ill-fitting. Um, yeah. It may have been too big for him, but it wasn't, you know, like the picture I have in my mind of like a child that like, you know, yeah. his little feet are just sticking yeah. out from yeah. under the breastplate. Yeah. And, you and know? that's the picture you <laughs> get. And, yeah. Unfortunately, that's the picture we get as well, isn't yeah, it? Is. It's presented as such, and you you, yeah. you present the idea of a little boy cutting off a man's head, mm. and yeah, what yeah. sort of psychological trauma that that would have on him. That's <laughs> true too. There's so. so many little things like that as kids that I look back and I'm like, yeah. why did I just accept that? <laughs> because it was in pretty pastel colors, <laughs> yeah. felt words. Fascinating. Yeah, and and I think um I think that also speaks as well to at the beginning you mentioning that the, the 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 academic pursuits and and the sort of theological strivings that you you go through um, in your in your in your profession as an archaeologist ends up being supplementary to your faith because i think i, I imagine it would have been so easy to fall away if mm. these sort of things were the foundation of your faith if mm. if these sort of presentations of art were the foundations and i believe that it was a small boy defeating the giants and that's where I find my magic then when you take that away it's like oh no there's there's nothing left you know and, and I think that's why it's powerful and I think you, you even speak about Jesus walking on water as well um when you look at I'm going to butcher this I think it was a sea of Galilee which is not actually even a sea um could be a lake it's I think you mentioned. Lake Tiberi it has lots of names but the bible yeah. pretty much calls it the sea of Galilee yeah yeah and 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 how academics have gone to extents of saying maybe there was fog or the weather conditions meant Jesus wasn't actually walking on water, could be stepping on stones and, and stuff. And I think mm -hmm. I see the fact that your faith comes first in those not being enough to sort of shake you, but also you being able to point out, well, Simon was drowning. So, and Peter, <laughs> yeah, Peter was drowning. So something, something was there. Not a small detail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something was there. And, there is room for 
the miraculous because we deal with a miraculous God. And then mm. all of these other things end up helping inform us at the very least, but shouldn't be the basis. The basis has to be faith. And if faith is the basis, then faith doesn't necessarily require scientific evidence to, to be proven. It's faith. And then everything else actually helps up bolstering it as opposed to being the the, 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 the foundations underneath it. It's, it's unfair to your listeners to hear me now. I, I just turned 40. Uh, so I've had you know a couple of decades to really wrestle with this. But when I first went to undergrad and I was in some of these you know early religion courses, none of my professors in undergrad were, I don't want to say they weren't Christian, but um, they they really tried very hard to 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 strip faith out. I don't I don't know. They they would present some of these same you know things like um, you know for instance the Jesus walking on the water. One of the theories is um, a cold front came through and it suddenly froze. Just um, I of think so. that's just one of the things. So anyway, they would present this kind of new information, mm-hmm. um, you know, to to believe to young adults who were believers as evidence that the Bible was wrong and you need to turn away from God and you know you're silly for believing in God or something like that. And when you're presented with those things in a certain way, it does shake your faith. I had several years, I I describe it as an almost schizophrenic time in my life where I was learning all of this theological stuff that I had to learn for school. I mean, I went to Harvard. Harvard is, you know, not known as, you know, a conservative Christian, warm, fuzzy kind of place. You know, (laughs) being a Southern Christian at Harvard was, you know, not, um, I I didn't fit in beautifully, but um, I... You know, so I, I went through that struggle and I had this time where it's like these pieces don't fit together because I know God, I believe in God. I read my Bible every single day, you know, even when I was in college and, you know, God, I know you're here, but what I'm learning doesn't fit with this. Mm-hmm. And it took time and learning more and being willing to say no to some ideas, you know, to a certain, to certain theological, um, you know, academic type ideas, you know, for me to see how all of this can fit together and work together. And, you know, that for me, it it does, it works together. It builds, it builds my faith. And after you had that initial shock of somebody telling you everything you've been taught your whole life is wrong, you can, if you push through it, you can come to the place where you realize that those things can, can build your faith up and, you know, keep you interested and keep you growing and, you know, deepen, deepen your understanding of God, which, I mean, to go back to the beginning, like that's, I think that's why God gave us the scriptures the way that he did. They're, they're intentionally mysterious. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I say it again. I'm loving this conversation. Me I'm too. Conversation. <laughs> I keep looking at the time like, oh no, we've, we've already gone like almost an hour. I, I don't right. know if, if, if it's okay to sort of, there's maybe a couple more questions. Sure. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> My <laughs> husband wants to go, our, our movie theaters have just opened back up um, here in Tennessee. I need mm. to speak regionally and my husband's dying to go see Black Widow. Um, but mm. I, I think maybe we're going to wait till next weekend. <laughs> But I have nothing else planned, nothing going on. <laughs> it is a good movie. It is a good have movie. I've seen it recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It just came out here. It just started this weekend. Uh, yeah, it is a good one. Um, where did, where cool. did you see it, Pia? All right, so moving on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I actually saw it. I actually saw it in the cinema. I just okay. Saw it. <laughs> I can't We're say what I'm to go back. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So. 
Um, I was going to ask. Actually, I think I'll, I'll move to Robert's question quickly, just so we, I make sure like, we get it in. So Robert was asking, um, how can we, or how would you say we can learn from the past without being weighed down by it? Or, um, yeah, without it being a burden on, on us? And since you are someone that primarily deals with learning from the past, um, what, what, how, do you, how do you answer that? Um, I... I look at history typically with a lot of respect. Um, I, and I think maybe you have to start there. I, I think it's important, you know, they all say, you know, you learn from your history, you learn from your past. Um, and I think it's important that we know th- those things. But again, we have to hold it lightly. Um, I think, you know, God comes first. And we, we can learn from the past and we can learn from the good and we can learn from the bad. I, I'm a person who thinks it's, it's important to still keep teaching that stuff. I don't want to see, you know, history classes go away and all of that um, because we can only learn, you know, from what they have taught us. And so there's so much more that we, we know about the biblical world, you know, 2000 years after Jesus, you know, than then people did 1800 years after, but we still, you know, we have, just think about theologians, you know, C.S. Lewis and like, all of these great thinkers who are out there who have thought some great thoughts that we can choose to accept or reject or build upon or whatever. But those are, those are jumping off places for us. We don't have to start everything all over from scratch. And that's a blessing. So, yeah. Does that answer the question, sort of? Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it does. I, I'll, I'll sort of follow up with... Um where you're starting off from so as, as you say you know people like c.s lewis and, and like great theologians and thinkers they give us a a jumping off point um what if they're what if they're flawed in in their thinking and, and especially as now we i say now but as more was saying a lot of sort of the academic thoughts so someone made the um made the uh he, he made a comment that for lack of topics to write theses is about people come up with some stuff and so you know you, you come up with there was a cold front that caused for jesus to walk on water because <laughs> everything else okay. that has been said about it has been said and you need to write your a new thesis so what about when those thinkers or, or, or those people are wrong uh, is it how do we how do we navigate that when the jumping off point in and of itself is not necessarily the right, best place to start how do we how do we deal with not wanting to always start from first principles and, and start from the from, from the beginning and, and sort of develop our own to appreciating what's been done before and building upon that. I, I definitely say you, when it comes to biblical studies, you have to start with the text. And you know, when you're when you're new to the Bible, there are gonna be places where you need, you know, footnotes and and scholars and stuff to come in and maybe explain you know, explain certain details to you because you don't know the entire history of the world. You know, none of us are encyclopedias. We do have to start with the text. And if we do that, the beauty of God's word is that it all fits together. There's a harmony there. It is breathed by the spirit. And so when you start there and you have an understanding of text to begin with, then you can exercise discernment. And I think that's what we have to do with any human who has anything to say about scripture, um, that we have to be able to discern if what is being, you know, taught from a pulpit or Sunday or, you know, written in a book like one of mine or, you know, somebody else, we we have to have 
the discernment to say this fits with God's word or this doesn't fit with God's word. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's the key. And tied up in that is not being so swept up in cults of personality. Uh, that's something I think we, we all do these days. We worship individuals in, I'll speak to the U S but there are so many, you know, mega churches here who have these pastors at the top who are like gods to the people, you know, anything they say must be correct, whether it is or not. And we get so enamored with, you know, well, I, I read this one book by Amanda Hope Haley. I loved it. Everything else she says must be correct and fascinating and awesome. No, (laughs) Amanda Hope Haley and other authors should be growing and changing and learning. And um, nothing I say is scripture. Nothing any human says is only the Bible is scripture. And so I hope people, you know, can can benefit from what I've studied and what I've learned. Um, And the same thing for your pastors in your churches. They are there to, to, to guide you, to train you, to teach you, to bring you up in the word, to challenge you. But nothing they say is scripture. Nothing C.S. Lewis says is scripture. No matter who it is, only the Bible is scripture. Mm-hmm. So we have to be willing to just say, ah, I, I disagree with that. I'm, mm-hmm. and I, I love 90% of what C.S. Lewis says, but I don't think this part's right. And that's okay. We don't have to accept humans completely. Yeah. Uh, thank you for saying that. And, that's, and... that's such a beautiful <laughs> soundbite. Uh, I was going to say, it's probably the nicest way of saying that that we've said that on this yeah. podcast. We, we normally <laughs> send shots. We normally yeah. send shots quite a lot, but you said it so nicely, so graciously. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, and God bless yeah. you for the humility to say that as well. Um, and and just, just following up on that as well, because I think, I can't remember which of your books, but I know that you speak on what a good Bible or a good translation is. Actually, maybe not by answering specifically which one it is, but I think you gave some good criteria on yeah. what would make a good Bible. Could you speak on that a little bit? Because you said... You said, uh, I think correctly, start with the text, but there's so many different translations. And if I'm right, you worked on the voice translation? I did, yes. Yes, yeah. Yes. So, well, in, in your opinion, <laughs> we've got we've got, we've got, got a gem here, guys. Like, Bro! I'm going to say I'm excited. I'm going to say I'm excited about having you on. Like, what, what would you, what would you what? class hey, as a nah. good... <laughs> I'm gassed. I'm 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 excited right now. I feel like, like we literally have right now. <laughs> you know, like uh, when I was thinking about this, I was like, you know, the seventy or so scholars that may have um, been part of the Septuagint. Mm. I was like, yo, we have a modern day scholar on uh, on hey. the podcast today. <laughs> you know, like she's literally worked on the translation of the Bible, which is incredible. Hey, but, Robert, yeah, so Robert, if you're listening back to this, yeah, you missed out, bro. You missed <laughs> out big time. <laughs> You guys, my I'm not going to fit through the door to my office. My head is getting so big. Usually it's my hair that's the problem, but I think it's actually my skull that's expanding at this point. <laughs> Y'all are so kind. Oh, no. But, yeah, so so speaking to a, a translation of the Bible, what would you say is a, is a good one, a good approach to have towards what mm. scripture we should actually be studying? So I'm always cagey with this. I don't usually like tell you run out and buy this particular translation um, because all modern, all translations have their pros and cons. Mm. And I think finding a good translation starts with understanding something we've already talked about. And that's that the Bible is a collection of manuscripts and the way we get our modern, you know, single book of the Bible, you know, you know the 66 compiled together is um, through translators going through and translating these various pieces. And so what I think is important for just 
the average person going out there looking for a Bible is find one that has been transparent about the way that translation came to be. So most Bibles have really good introductions to them, or sometimes they're in the back and they'll say, you know, this group of people, you know, worked together for 20 years to make this translation or this one individual, like the message Bible was done by one guy, you know, so find Eugene Peterson. So like, find out about him. Like, who is he? What might his biases be, you know, or not? Do you agree, you know, back Mm -hmm. and forth or, you know, was a, was a Bible translation sponsored by a particular denomination? So you want to know where it came from. And then inside, I think it's important that a Bible have really good footnotes. And I don't mean like study guide Bibles that have study notes, although those can be, can be great. They can also be bad. Um, But like the really boring kind of footnotes that like you'll have a little like asterisk in there and it'll go to the bottom and it'll be, you know, like letters, like for instance, with David and Goliath, if your Bible translation says that he was nine feet tall, there should be a little asterisk there that takes you down to the bottom. And it'll say something like, you know, Greek manuscripts say seven, you know, or when you're in Exodus and Moses is parting the Red Sea, spoiler alert, it wasn't it wasn't the Red Sea or the the word that's being translated red is actually read. So our tradition has filled in there and um, it says Red Sea. So a good Bible is just going to have a little asterisk and say, you know, manuscripts say read sea. Um, So you just, you just want a Bible that's transparent um, and that, that, gives you the power to know where decisions have been made for you. And so that you can decide whether or not you agree with it. Cause I, I did work on a translation. It was called The Voice. Um, it wasn't super widely distributed, but um, going through that process, like I realized it's it's done by committee and it's done by people who have studied the language and who I hope have been inspired by God to do this work. Um, you know, they're they're talented in the in the languages, and you know, not everyone is going to be able to sit down and learn ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek and you know, to the level that you need to, to you know to be able to read the Bible in its original languages. And I, you know, that's and that's that's fine. That's good. I don't think God wants us all sitting down just being translators all the time. He wants us out, you know, in His world, being His hands and feet, and you know, working for Him. Um, so there are, you know some people who are talented in translation and, you know, they're doing the work. So I would say have multiple translations too. have a couple where you can compare and, you know, see what they say, but, you know, basically just, just know where they came from. <laughs> Long-winded answer. <laughs> no, but perfect answer. Perfect answer. Because, uh, and, and I think that's, the, is the same answer you gave in your book as well, which was not necessarily a particular translation, but more thinking about, like you said, the, the footnotes and, and the transparency behind the people that do the translation because those biases can affect yeah. the way that the, the text come out. So, no, And even you. the age of it too, because you know the Dead Sea Scrolls, which for a lot of the books of the Old Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls are by far the oldest closest to the original manuscripts that they, that we have. And I mean, those weren't, those weren't found until the 20th century. And so, you know, making sure that you have a Bible translation that, you know, incorporates the fact that those have been discovered, um, you know, that just that kind of thing. So modern translations are not evil. Uh, (laughs) At least not all of them. (laughs) Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that's so, that's so good. That's so good. Um, Hey, listeners, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just sitting here just gassed. I'm just excited because there's like, there's just stuff going on in my head that is just, yeah, it's this is dope. I like this. 
it is good, isn't it? I, I am so. conscious that we've gone over time. Um, so um, I'll move us on to hookups, mm-hmm. um, which is where we, we sort of talk about um, something that we, we're learning from and that we've enjoyed um, and share with the people. Um, so, yeah. Mo, have you got any hookups? Well, my, my brain is frazzled right now, but <laughs> we, we can try We can try bring good it back. Way. <laughs> In a very good way. Um, okay. <laughs> I want to hook up the, the voice Bible translation, but you said it wasn't distributed widely. Um, it's a very good question. still I get it. It's, it. yeah. it's from Thomas Nelson. It was a major thing, but it came out... Right when um, publishing information you did not need, um, Harper Collins <laughs> Publishers, who they're one of the big five, they purchased Thomas Nelson back in like 2012, right when the Bible came out. And mm-hmm. so their you know, corporations got involved, basically. So it's out there; you can find it. I mean, it, it's it's on Amazon. But as far as you know, being able to get you know pretty purple leather covers and mm-hmm. you know all of that, there aren't very many options. I think it's basically like a hardback and a softback. Um, you know, they're not. They're not making the real pretty ones anymore, <laughs> but I've it's actually, around. <laughs> like, during the podcast, I've, I've actually got my phone. I was looking on yeah. version to see if there was a, there was a, but yeah, I can't see on version. I was going to hook it up there, but yeah, I'm just going to go search Amazon right now. Um, okay. So that's, that's my hookup, <laughs> the voice Bible translation. Yeah. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> um, so my hookup will be... Um, and I want to save. I want to save. I mean, I want to save your books for later because you said you might share something else. So, well, I want to mention your books later. But my hookup would be um, the Ramona Kenshin movie because there's a new one coming out. Mm. So, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this movie, uh, this series of movies that recently came on Netflix in the UK, the Ramona Kenshin movies. Um, and there's the final one, which I've been really excited about. That's coming out. I want to say end of the month. Um, so, so, yeah, check check it out. It's Veronica Kenshin, the beginning. So check that. out. Oh, so they yeah. had the final. Now they got the beginning. And and that's the thing. I, I love the way they did it as well because they sort of wrap up his story and then show you why he became Batosai and then Samurai X. So it's a little insight into our well. <laughs> of random head, sounds like something my husband would love. <laughs> <laughs> If he likes Black Widow, he very well actually might. Um, mm. the movies, yeah, but it's yeah. sort of action, but ancient Japanese samurai stuff. He loves cool. all of that stuff. We yeah. he just made me watch Mortal Kombat. <gasps> the new Not, one, yeah, the yes. new one. Yes. Yeah, I I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but he's, yeah, he loved, I I appreciated it for what it was, Um, but, you know, I'm a a girly girl. It's so fascinating, you've just gone from, like, deep Bible talk to just, just Veronica Kenshin, and I I like this, I like this. Mortal Kombat. I like this. I definitely grew up like playing the original Mortal Kombat, yes. like video yes. game. Yeah, yeah I yes. so it had that little bit of nostalgia, you know, mm. in it for me. But, um, he loved it. He did all the martial arts and stuff. Like yes. um, that, yeah, you got to respect Get that over stuff. Here. That, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this um, cool. and oh, actually, oh gosh. Okay, so Amanda, yes, your your hookup as well. Um, so I have recently found um a group of study guides um that are oh shoot, what are they called? I'm forgetting. Oh, at his feet, Bible study. And they're written by two women. 
and I guess they're geared toward women, and but they're not like any other women's Bible study. I I spent a lot, I've worked a lot of women's Bible studies before, and often they're very emotion based and that sort of thing. And these aren't; these are good exegetical guides that just kind of they walk you you know through books of the Bible and you know give you some information. They're they're ten chapter or uh, like. 10 days each. They're good bite-sized pieces, but it's good, um, just good biblical learning. And anyway, uh, it's called At His Feet, and they've got three or four out. And I encourage people to check them out. Um, they're a good balance between, you know, deep and deep and wide. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you for um, At His Feet. Okay, mm-hmm. I, think I, I think I found... I see one on Philippians. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. They okay, so um, there's Philippians, Ephesians. I've got the Luke ones on my desk right now. They split Luke into three separate ones because they're. I think they're thinking about them being done by like women's small groups, you know, or something like that. But they're, I, they're just they're just a good balance of you know theology and history and you know making it accessible um it's they're they're some of my favorite that i've ever found um, especially for women so maybe not for you guys maybe for your wives and your (laughs) listeners (laughs) but these ladies deserve a shout out they're doing good work thank you thank you um i'll I'll make sure to put that in the show notes and then i'll I'll, actually will check it out myself as well because i I like that idea of there being a balance between the theological depth and also trying to make it more accessible so um um, so yeah just sort of rounding up i i do want to say so we've mentioned um the two books that of yours that i've read mary magdalene never wore blue eyeshadow which again easily the best titled book um and the red-haired archaeologistics israel and I really want to encourage people to to go and go and check those out. They're such really, really good books, really good, really well written. And I, I like the fact that even though they are actually very challenging on a theological level as to what we believe and as to how we approach the Bible, they're also extremely relational. And you you really are talking about your experience being in Israel and, and walking through um, the town and sometimes having fairly sketchy um, interactions with people and having people shout at you and leer at you and um, act like they're going to hit you with their car, which, is, which I thought was very scary. Um, yeah, so please, please, <laughs> yeah, um, please go and check those out. Um, but sort of just rounding out, and actually it might not be the best way to round out at all, but I remember when I was reading The Red-Haired Archaeologist, um, it was around the same time that the whole Israel... Um, is it Palestine? It's Palestinian, Israel-Palestinian conflict was sort of getting a lot of media attention and we're hearing a lot more about it. And I think the story you told of when you went on the Christian and, was it Christian and Muslim or it, it was sort of, it was a, a dual, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were sort of almost playing the game of who's the most, who's the, who had the most done to them. Yeah. Um, or who, who's the who's the worst victim mm-hmm. sort of thing um and i thought i thought your your sort of take on that and and your what you came out with with recognizing the nuance of the situation and of the two experiences of people that have have suffered really at each other's hands was was very very sobering so i was wondering if you could just sort of maybe just speak on that a little bit if that's yeah. not too heavy to sort of end on no, no. I think it's important to end on. Um, 
one thing, one thing I tried to do when I set out to write the book, it was going to kind of be, you know, here are archaeological sites and here's how, you know, they, they illuminate the Bible for you. And that's definitely in there. But in the time I spent on this particular trip, I interacted with the people there a lot more. And I really realized that Israel and Palestine was in I went to Hebron, which is in the West Bank. Um, but those are unique places on earth where ancient history all the way up to modern history, they influence everything that's happening there every single day. And it's really impossible, or, or at least it should be impossible, to separate out ancient history from what's going on there because there's such, you know, a long, it, it all feeds each other. And so we ended up um, into taking something called a dual narrative tour of Hebron. And Hebron was King David's first capital city. It's where he ruled for seven years before he went to Jerusalem. And most famously, it's where you have the, um, the Tomb of the Patriarchs. So that's Abraham, Sarah, and their descendants are, um, the, it's called the Cave of Machpelah. They're supposedly buried under there. You can't get into the cave these days. Um, but 2,000 years ago, um, Herod the Great built a synagogue on top of it. And so you can visit that structure. And it has been added onto and changed over the years. But he actually designed it around what the temple looked like in Jerusalem. And so actually, one of the most amazing parts for me about seeing that and going to Hebron was you know, realizing that the foundation stones that were there were the like the same age as some of the the building that had happened to the temple. Like in a way, that's the closest we can get to Ezra's temple today. Um, is actually going to see this place in, in Hebron. Well, so it's because it's Abraham's descendants. It is super important not only to Jews but also to Palestinians. And um, Hebron, Hebron is ninety percent. Um, in the West Bank and 10% in Israel. The line, um, the armistice line goes directly through the city. And as of today, it actually goes directly through that building. And so when you go to visit the tomb of the patriarchs, if you go in one side, it's a Jewish synagogue. If you go in the other side, it's, it's a Muslim mosque. And so the only people really who can see both sides are people who are not citizens of either country and who are of either religion. So, you know, American Christians, <laughs> we get to go, basically. So what happened was we jumped on this tour and we spent the first half of the day with a Jewish tour guide who toured us around and told us the history of Israel in the area and all of the different ways that um, his people had been harmed by Muslims over the years. And he coined the phrase that I used in there, the um, uh, competing victimology tour is what he called it, which is so clever. And we all kind of like laughed and smiled when he said it, but that's absolutely what it was because you got one story and you heard how the people had, the Jews had been so hurt over the years by the Muslims. And then halfway through the day, we crossed the border. We went into the West Bank. And for the rest of the day, we had a Muslim tour guide who, you know, showed us his city. And the same thing, we saw all the atrocities that had happened to them by, you know, the IDF and, um, Anyway, so we, we heard both stories, but what, what we got out of it was how much, I guess, political history doesn't make it outside of Israel to America. We learned so much about the sources of the conflict there that we had simply never heard before. And, um, you know, our takeaway from it was, 
Oh, that I mean, it's it's a tragic situation, and I've long said that I don't think this is a crisis that can be you know solved before Jesus comes back. I just don't think it's in humans' capabilities to solve it. But what really kind of keeps it going is this this history of 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 emotional hurt that everyone carries with them, and it's understandable, and you under you know you know why it's there, but until someone, you know, in a place of leadership is willing to stand up and say, we've got to put this behind us and move forward clean. You know, there, there's, you know, we're going to be, we're going to be stuck in this situation for a long time. Yeah. I think it, it was really, it was really important. Well, it, it was important for me that it, it wasn't like you were taking sides. It was very realistic it's, that, yeah, it, it's a, it's a very tragic and nuanced situation going on. Um, yeah. And that that was really helpful for me, especially as we were hearing all of this, and uh, we were hearing it, or at least I was hearing it from the point of view of a lot of my Arabic friends or Palestinian friends who were pointing out the the, the evils of Israel and how they're this really bad thing. And, and as a Christian who understands that you know our faith comes from a Jew in, in Christ, um, it was difficult for me. And, and I think you pointing out that there's been so much hurt and there's so much people carrying around so much, so much that it's not as simple as you're bad and you're, you're good or you're right and you're wrong. It's a lot more complicated than that. I found that very sobering. So yes, thank you for is. sharing that as well. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, I, I wish everybody could go over there and see it. I, I think that's why travel is so important too. When you go and you meet people who have lived different experiences and, you know, we, we sat down and had a meal with a Muslim family as, as a part of that. And, you know, heard about their experiences. I mean, that, that, that kind of thing is very important. And the crisis itself is, I feel like at least in the U S they try to make it sound like it's Israel versus Palestine. And that's not quite correct because of the way the borders were drawn over the years. And what's happening these days is really about the Gaza Strip which is physically separated from the west rest of the West Bank. And it is controlled by Hamas. And the West Bank at the moment isn't completely controlled by Hamas. Although, you know, who knows what their next elections are going to look like. But it's it's really almost two different groups. And it's it's much more complicated than we get over here. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's either you're pro-Israel or you're pro-Palestine. The twain shall not meet. And that is a very poor representation of, of, of humanity over there. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I think um, I think we'll be rounding up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you got any any sort of final things you wanna you wanna say? <laughs> it's been mind blown after mind blown, hasn't it? <laughs> Do you know what? It's, so I I started studying theology, and even even if a master's is not quite um, so it's Christian leadership, and I did some theology within it. But this is almost this conversation has almost reignited that that desire to get into theology. With theology, I really just got into the stage of of like wrestling with it and just being like, this this is actually this has the capacity to like shake my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to the point where I wasn't able to communicate what the gospel was anymore because I'm like, there's so much nuance and so many different elements to it that I just can't say this statement about trying to drill all of these different things into it and I kind of stepped out for different reasons beyond that so yeah this this conversation is just like I actually want to go back to just start digging back into this um so yeah for me so what I think my takeaway is just read your bible and pray every day just back to the old song yes and yeah I think 
the same for me it was it's like reading Mary Magdalene and then reading um the red-haired archaeologist it it really I think you you use the term hold certain things lightly and it shows me what needs to be held lightly and certain traditions that actually if you take this away it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that God is God and the fact that he loves me and the fact that he's given me a means to interact with him that he that is necessary um and so it's been it's yeah it's been it's been so good and thank you so much Amanda for coming on and for dedicating uh, giving us your time thank well. you for having me this has been so bad I've been looking forward to this interview ever ever since we started trying to schedule it so yeah. this has been great <laughs> so, and, and yeah as, as Mo said Robert you missed out man <laughs> Facts, straight facts. <laughs> but, do you always um, shame him so publicly? <laughs> oh yes, yes we do. Oh yes, oh, yes okay. we do. <laughs> and and I think I think we're nice about it because when either of us are not around and he's he he's a uh, he, the shoes another foot. He he's just as savage to be honest. So. <laughs> do you know what? I don't listen back to the podcast, so I never hear what you guys hear. About, so it's fine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but no, thank you so much, Amanda, and the people. Please check out the books. It will be yes. linked in the in the description. Um, and Amanda, you've also got a podcast. There's two seasons out now. Um, Redhead. Wait, what's, what's the name of the podcast? The Redhead Archaeologist, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. the Redhead Archaeologist yeah. is uh, is the brand. So the Redhead Archaeologist digs Israel. The book came out in February, and I'm working on the next one. Will be digs Egypt. So um, it the digs oh, digs Israel is the first right. in a series. Um, yeah. So digs Egypt is. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's going to be about archaeology in Egypt, but obviously focusing on, you know, sites that are important to, to, to the Bible. And I'm, um, yeah, going to try to maybe explain, you know, the Exodus and where all that fits in, in the Egyptian timeline. And spoiler alert, it doesn't. So, um, <laughs> you know, we'll see. So it'll, um, I don't know. It, it'll be fun. I'm really looking forward to doing it, honestly, if I can get over to Egypt. That's, that's of course, been the challenge of these times. Yeah. Is is that the site? Because I think at the end of um, Dick's Israel, you mentioned a site that may have something to do with Samson. Is is that a similar site? Or um, oh, so where, they, where they might find or, or where they'll be looking for things regarding Samson and Samson's life and, and Israel in that time? So Samson took out the city of Gat. Yeah. Um, so Philistia had like five major cities and Gat is the one that, you know, like he... Um, ended his life in and he knocked the temple down uh, so that's being excavated right now um, they're literally right now um, they're, the archaeologists are doing their work um, in Israel today so um, is that what you were referring to? Yeah that's what I was referring to that's not the Egypt that's you said that's being done now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, book as well yeah, yeah. I, I remembered it wrong yeah but mm-hmm. yeah no I'm looking forward to that and, and yeah that would be as soon as that's out, I'll be buying that for sure. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So I think uh, we'll round up. Um, we normally round up with just shouting out some of the guys that have helped the podcast. So shout out to Rude for the intro and outro uh, music that you hear. Um, you can find us on TBS Furnace um, at hotmail.com. That's the email address. You can find us at the Furnace UK on instagram amanda where can people find you are there any socials that you'd want someone uh people to follow yeah yeah my website is redhairedarchaeologist.com and then you know same thing on facebook and instagram i'm out yeah. there so if you just google it it should all pop up <laughs> yeah, and um yeah i guess that will be the furnace signing out <laughs> <laughs>
Plao.